Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, we've gone as far as verse 14. If you're visiting with us, you can see that we're doing some remodeling here. So um, don't mind the mess, but we'll continue and and, um, we'll get it painted, this wall and the sanctuary here pretty soon. But that doesn't matter right now, does it? Uh, We got our Bibles. We have the Lord. And um, we're going to get into our Bible study. We've gone, as I said, as far as verse 14. We do verse-by-verse study here at Calvary Chapel, uh, going through the books of the Bible. It's the best way to grow, just simply going through the scriptures, growing in God's grace and in his love. And let's pray. Father, we ask that you would, as kids are going to be heading back to school and teachers, uh, helpers, moms homeschooling, um, parents homeschooling, uh, whatever the case may be, we know that that our kids are very precious to you. And we have opportunity every day as parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, to be able to speak truth into their lives because the world's not going to do that. We can give them your love and your truth. The world won't. We can let them know that you love them. You created them. And that, Lord... That you are real. And they can have relationship with you. So I pray you bless them in their classrooms, the the middle schoolers upstairs. And Lord, us here in the sanctuary and in the coffee shop and listening online, that our hearts would be ready to hear from you. I do pray for teachers, helpers at every level, that you would just bless them, help them be a light where they are, to be a blessing, to see the kids as a ministry. I know they do, but, Lord, it can be difficult. So, Lord, I just pray you help them, give them wisdom and strength. And, Lord, I also pray that you would help us, wherever we're planted, to be light, to reach out to others. We all got a mission field, to the people at work, our neighbors, families, others. We are here for such a time as this. Be sensitive to your leading and guidance. And I pray that this morning as we study your word, that it would, so many have said it's been so freeing to hear these words, to just help us grow in the grace and love of Jesus Christ as we walk with you. And so, Lord, help us be attentive. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been with us going through Colossians, uh, we have seen that Paul in the beginning of chapter 2 would write that I have this great conflict for you in Colossae and also for you in Laodicea, a city nearby Colossae. And he is writing to the Christians there. He's telling them, first of all, don't be deceived by persuasive words because false teachers were coming in. And with their intellect and, and, and with their, their theology that was wrong and false, They were persuading the Christians into that which was false and away from Christ. He would say, don't be persuaded by that. Don't be deceived by persuasive words. And and his heart was that they would experience the richness of the full assurance of the understanding of the knowledge of God. He wanted them to know that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And for them to be steadfast in faith. Just as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to walk with him. And just as you have been walking with him in faith, be rooted and built up in him. And not only are you to be not deceived, but don't be cheated as we saw in verse 8. 
Don't be cheated with uh, the idea of being robbed or plundered. Don't be cheated by the world's philosophy and empty deceit according to traditions of man and the principles of this world and that which is not according to Christ. For in Christ dwells the fullness of God. And listen, you are complete in him. And then Paul would begin to address what the legalists were bringing to those Gentile churches. That they had to be circumcised and observe certain uh, days and keep certain dietary laws and observe the feasts and all these other things. And Paul, as we ended last week, he would write to us, inspired by the Spirit of God, that you have been circumcised, not physical circumcision. You've been circumcised without hands. For our circumcision, the spiritual circumcision, is in Christ. How he has changed our hearts and uh, there has been regeneration. We've been born again. There's a working of God in the cutting away the foreskin of our hearts away. And as we are one that we are circumcised in the spirit, that is following after the Lord, we're ones that say, I'm devoted to you, Lord. Putting away the sins of the flesh, loving the Lord, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we continue on now, we're going to see that the apostle is going to tell us how Jesus wiped out the handwriting requirement that was against us. He's disarmed principalities and powers. We do read in verse 14 of the chapter that having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So Jesus' death on the cross has, number one, wiped out the handwriting requirements, or it means the certificate of debt. Every single one of us had a certificate of debt, a record of the crimes, the sins that we have committed, and the debt that is to be paid for those sins, as the Word of God declares to us very clearly, that the debt, the wages of sin is this, it is death. But Jesus, he's wiped out the handwriting requirement. He has paid the debt for us, for our sins, by dying for every one of our sins, making atonement for our sins. It's been nailed to the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, you know that he would cry out right before he would breathe his last. He would cry out, te telestai. It means paid in full. It is finished. And it wiped out the, you know, certificate of debt consisting of the decrees against us which is hostile to us has been taken out of the way nailed to the cross and I want to give you some advice leave it there leave it there don't take it down don't carry it around don't let the enemy condemn you just leave it there in the finished work of Jesus Christ what he's done for you and Jesus' death on the cross, not only, only wiping out the handwriting requirements, but secondly, verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Not only did Jesus' work on the cross wipe out the handwriting requirements that were against us, but secondly, it disarmed principalities and powers. Speaking of the demonic powers and Satan's authority over us. And understand this, precious people. You who are in Christ, you who have Christ in your heart, remember, this is the mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ dwells in your heart. The light of God is in you. Listen, understand this, that Satan has no authority over you. He has been disarmed. 
He has been stripped of his power over you. This word disarm is a military term that means he has no tangible weapon against you. He has been stripped and made a public spectacle. And the idea here is when, uh, as it's a military, he would take a city, he would take a territory. And what he would do, that general, in his victory, that he would strip away the clothes of the opposing army's officers and generals. He would parade them down the conquered city, the main street, naked. They became a public spectacle. And that is the idea here. When Jesus died on the cross for us, he made us alive. He delivered us from the power of darkness, brought us into his marvelous light. Satan was defeated. He was stripped of all authority and power over us. And I emphasize that to you because there are some circles of Christianity and churches and some Christians that they overstate Satan's authority. There are some teachers in the church that teach that Satan can have power over the believer, that Christians can be demon-possessed. And I remember when I first got in the ministry in the 90s, the early 90s, it was kind of a thing that was coming through the church. There was a lot of uh, talk about spiritual warfare. There was uh, movements about having uh, demon-casting-out services, and they were going on Sunday nights in a number of churches all these things that were taking place. And then, you know, they come by and they say, hey, come to our demon casting out services. And so if you had the demon of lust, the demon of gluttony, the demon of profanity, the demon of this, we'll cast that demon out of you. Even had a guy come in and he had a list of all these different demons, the demon of gluttony and, you know, profanity and lust and all this other stuff. And then what the demon does when it's cast out. You know, the demon of gluttony throws up. You know, the demon of, you know, profanity screams and all this. He made it up. He made it up. If you are a Christian, you cannot be demon-possessed. Now, I do believe in demon possession. We see it very clearly in the scriptures, but it's not a born-again Christian that can be demon-possessed. You have Christ in you. And I say that because if you have Christ in you, the light of the world, Christ in you, you're not going to be possessed by a demon. And I say that because of Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, demons have been disarmed. Jesus has brought victory to us because he trampled, uh, triumphed, that is, over death and, and Satan. And we're under Jesus' authority. And the scriptures tell us that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Amen? James says you submit to God Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That is a promise of the Lord. So a container is either lit or it's dark. You have the light of the world in you. You have the light of Jesus Christ. So Satan cannot possess you. And there are those who will say, well, you know, there's demonic activity in my home and stuff. When you go into a basement that's dark, what do you do? Flip on the light. So you bring the light of Jesus Christ, the praises of God. You dedicate your home to the Lord. You submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So as a Christian, I don't worry about a demon is going to possess me because I have my mouth open snoring at night. The only thing that Satan can do is that he can deceive. He is going to war against you. Spiritual warfare is very, very real. He'll throw the fiery darts at you. He will condemn, he will accuse, and he'll create fear. And he's very good at it because he's been doing it for a long time. He will come along and condemn you 
because he is the one Revelation chapter 12 tells us is the accuser, the brethren who accuses us day and night. How can you call yourself a Christian? You aren't a Christian. God doesn't love you. He's not going to forgive you. Why should you read your Bible? Why even go to church? You're not what you could be. You're not what you should be. You're a spiritual waste, and he'll just keep pounding you with that. But Revelation chapter 12 goes on to say that the saints overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of testimony. Will you please remember that? When he comes along and says, God doesn't love you. He's not going to forgive you. What good are you? You know, and he just pounds you with that. You can say, listen, Jesus died for me. I am forgiven. I am forgiven. I am a child of God. And he loves me. And I have the spirit of adoption where I can cry out, Abba, Father. And his love remains. I belong to him. And we overcome him. By the blood of the lamb, you are forgiven. And the word of testimony that he loves you and you belong to him. And when you accuse me, Satan, I'm going to go there. I'm going to remind you what the Word of God has to say. And that's how Jesus defeated Satan in the temptations. He quoted the Word of God, and that's what you do. He will try to deceive you any way that he can because he's called the master deceiver. He's called the father of lies. He will try to trick you. He will tempt you. Paul says in 2 Corinthians in chapter 2, don't be ignorant of Satan's devices. Later on in the epistle, he says Satan himself will transform himself into an angel of light. He will try to make you ineffective in your walk, in your service to God. He will try to destroy your marriage, your family. He hates you. He hates me. He hates his church. He will try to oppress you. He will war against you, and it's very, very real. And as you get closer to the Lord, and as you grow in the Lord, that warfare is going to increase. But you put on the whole armor of God. And we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. And remember, he has no authority over you. I was with some pastors on Friday, and we were talking about, you know, doesn't it seem like just the spiritual warfare is increasing? The enemy is just bringing people and things that are just discouraging and trying to create fear and all these other things but listen we have victory in jesus christ and he has no power over you he's not the opposite equal of god and remember you are complete what in him and jesus did not make you alive together with him so you can be controlled and dominated by satan you have been brought out of the darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Jesus has conquered death, paid the penalty for our sins. Satan is a defeated enemy. And remember, we do have an enemy. And it's not one another. You can be upset with somebody. You can you know, just be frustrated with them. But listen, your brothers and sisters in Christ are not your enemy. We have a real enemy. That is Satan. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We put on the whole armor of God. We fight from victory. He has been exposed. Keep your focus on Jesus. Amen. And you turn on the light, and you walk in the light, and you abide in Christ, and know that Jesus, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But Paul continues to write, So let no one judge you, in verse 16, in food or in drink, or regarding a festival, or new moon, or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. We know that not just with the churches of Asia Minor, there, which is today Turkey, were the legalists trying to have influence with the Gentile Christians, 
but also with Galatia and, and really all the churches in the first century there. And they were saying, the legalists, the Judaizers, that you have to be circumcised in order to have a righteous standing before God. And also they were saying you are to observe certain days like Sabbath, festivals, feasts, and observe certain dietary laws. Matter of fact, remember that we see in the book of Galatians that Paul publicly rebuked Peter because of the whole issue of diet, that Peter refusing to eat with the Gentiles. Paul would also write in Galatians chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, you observe days and months and seasons and years, and I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Why would you want to return to the weak and beggarly elements? So Paul is getting them established in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace. There's not two gospels. There's not you're saved by faith and by the law or by circumcision or keeping of, you know, the feast or whatever it might be, keeping the Sabbath. You are saved by faith alone, Christ alone. And he gets them established in that. I was even hearing, reading the... Uh, uh, someone who's, you know, popular, you know, in, you know, writings and stuff that he says there's a doctrine or a gospel of justification and a gospel of sanctification. There's one gospel, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, yet you are justified by faith alone. So keep that in mind because then there are those who will want to pull you into, well, you're really not saved unless you do this thing or observe this day, or do this religious act. So follow the flow of the apostle here, of what he's saying in this letter. Listen, you're dead in your trespasses, but he's made you alive together with him by dying on the cross for your sins. You have been circumcised spiritually in your heart, and now those things, the regulations, the law, which included the Sabbath and dietary laws and festivals and other Sabbaths, they're just a shadow of things to come. Christ is the reality or the substance, literally the body. Now, this is important. I don't want you to go away thinking, well, are you saying that we shouldn't study the Old Testament or the sacrifices or the feast? We've gone through all 66 books of the Bible here at Calvary Chapel, not just once but twice. Chapter by chapter, verse by verse, all Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness. So from Genesis to Revelation, it's the whole counsel of God is important for us to study it. But when we look at those feasts, when we look at the sacrifices, it points to Jesus, it speaks of Jesus, it's all fulfilled by Jesus. Remember that... Jesus said to the religious leaders in John chapter 5, verse 39, that you search the scriptures and in them you think you have eternal life, but they testify of me. He also would say earlier in the chapter that don't think that it came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. There's nothing wrong with the law. But we can't keep it. And it won't save us. What the law does is it condemns us. The animal sacrifices of the Old Testament couldn't take away sin. It was just a covering in sin until the Lamb of God came and died for our sins once and for all. Hebrews clear on that. Celebrate feast, Passover. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Took away the sins of the world. They observed the Sabbath. He's our Sabbath rest. We have a Sabbath life. 
Now, it was sunny outside, and all morning I'd been greeting people at the front door and after services, and as you come, or as they were coming, I, I didn't bend down to the shadow that was cast and try to shake the shadow, you know, their hand or greet them. I have the person right there in front of me, the reality, right? Why would I go to the shadow? So we don't have to go back to the shadow. We have the reality, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And remember, as we study the Old Testament, that those things point to Jesus. They speak of Jesus. And we know that as we go into the New Testament, that Christ is our Sabbath rest. All foods have been declared good to eat. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, to be received with thanksgiving. Romans chapter 14, verse 17, we read that the kingdom of God is not about eating or drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And Paul would also write in Romans and to the Corinthians about eating meat offered to idols. He said, don't stumble the weaker brother. It's the law of love and sensitivity. That's what the issue is. And we as Christians, listen, are not under the Sabbath law. I remember when, you know, years ago, there was a group that came along and said, why don't you observe the Sabbath? You, you don't observe the Sabbath. You're not really a church. You need to observe the Sabbath. And, I, you know, I'm going, what do you mean? We've been doing Sunday mornings for a long time. Romans chapter 14, that one man esteems one day above another, another every day like you'd be fully convinced in your own mind. And then Paul went on to say that he observes the day, observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats, you know, to the Lord, for he gives God thanks, and he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and give God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Listen, if you observe the Sabbath, if that's your conviction, that's how you honor the Lord, then God bless you. I happen to esteem every day alike. That every day is to be a day where the church can gather and, and worshipers. You know, we can worship the Lord and study God's word. I esteem every day alike. If your conviction is the dietary laws, then go ahead, keep them. I'm not going to judge you on that. Because Colossians chapter 2 tells us that we're not to judge one another on these things. And that those things are the shadow of the substance Jesus Christ, as Paul has already told us in the chapter, that we are what? Complete in him. He continues writing, verse 18. He's already told us don't be cheated by man's traditions and worldly philosophy. The second time, he says, don't be cheated. Don't be cheated, you, of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Paul warning them not only concerning legalism, but also mysticism. Don't be cheated by those who have false humility, who worship angels, and they're puffed up. Now, we know that angels are real. We are not to worship them. Angels are all throughout the scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation. Matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter of the Bible, when John finished receiving the visions of the book of Revelation from the angel, it reads that he fell down at the feet of the angel and began to worship the angel. And the angel said, don't do that, John. Get up. 
I'm a fellow servant. Don't worship me. And there are those who get into perhaps the worship of angels, but a lot of times into praying to saints. I grew up in that religious system and praying to co-redemptor Mary, and we worship Jesus alone. That's the clear message of Scripture. There is one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. And Jesus came and died for the apostles. He died for the saints. And besides, if you're a believer, you're a saint. Do you realize that? That's a biblical definition. He died for Mary. The apostles used of God. Incredible. Mary, incredible young woman. Such depth of maturity. Special. She was about 16 years old when the Gabriel came and said that you're carrying the Christ child. You read about the depth of her, her spirituality and maturity and the magnificent in, in Luke's gospel. But she gives praise to her Savior and her Lord. It's Jesus alone. And the apostle writes in verse 19, keep focus on the head Jesus, be centered on Jesus. These mystics are not teaching you about Jesus or pointing you to Jesus. They're all puffed up about other things, angels, and they're not desiring that all the body of Christ grow in the increase that is in God. Don't be cheated. They got a false humility. And in verse 20, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So Paul, as he's been emphasizing in this chapter, you be steadfast in Christ. You're complete in Christ. He saved you, forgiven you, freed you. It's not trying to be more religious, but rather relationship, a loving relationship with the Lord. And there are those coming into the Colossian church that were saying, don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. It's known as asceticism. Asceticism, it's it's a pseudo-spiritual position that emphasizes rules of physical self-denial. Real true spirituality is living in the power of the Holy Spirit in union with Christ by whom the believer has died to sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 6, for we know that our, our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless. Asceticism is man-made system of rules. Verse 22, according to the doctrines and commandments of man, now the, the consistent example of legalism in the New Testament was the Old Testament command of circumcision, which God intended for the Jews, for Abraham's descendants, as a sign of faith. What happened as Jesus died for our sins and rose again in this new covenant, the Judaizers and the legalists wanted to make circumcision a condition of salvation and of grace. And legalistic rules may have the appearance of wisdom, But the apostle writes, it's self-imposed religion. Look at what I don't do. Look at what I don't touch. Look how humble I am. 
And it turns into spiritual pride, a false humility. Ends up becoming a work of the flesh. And always remember Romans chapter 4, verse 4. Now to him who works the wages are not counted as grace, but as a debt. Here's the thing about self-imposed religion. It is man reaching to God, trying to justify himself by keeping a list of rules. True Christianity is God reaching down to man in love through Christ. Do we understand that? And grace doesn't mean that you just live any way that you want. Grace means that you're free not to sin. Grace means that you're free to live for him. It means that he, Jesus' death on Calvary's cross, has wiped out the handwriting requirements that was against us, and he's made us alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. And now I live to God. He's brought us out of darkness. Why do you want to go back to it? He's freed us from the deception of the world. You don't want to go back and live after the world. We live for Christ. And Christ lives in me, as the apostle would write in Galatians chapter 2, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died in vain. Here's the thing that we need to watch out for. For those of us who say, and I pray it's all of us, who say, Lord, I surrender to you, I, I am forgiven by you. You're working in my life. I'm devoted to you. And I just want to grow in my love for you and to know you more and to grow in your grace, to walk with you, to please you, to walk in holiness and righteousness. I see your word, your commandments, your precepts, and how to live a life. The highway of holiness is a better way of living to be free from sin and the deception of the world and darkness because I'm now in the light. There will always be somebody that may come along and try to take advantage of that. Well, do you really want to be righteous before God? Do you really want to be holy before God? Do you really want to be a Christian? And then they'll lay out this whole thing to you, self-imposing things, commandments of man. And duty. And subject yourself to regulations. And here the apostle, he writes, you know what will happen? You will be the most self-consumed person around. And that's what asceticism leads to. It's what legalism leads to. What it leads to is pretty soon you have relationship with rules. And then I notice those who don't keep the rules that I keep, then I'm more spiritual. It's a false humility. I'm really a Christian. They're not. And I end up being focused on what I do rather than what he did. You see, rules and regulations and laws won't change a man truly. It's Christ that does by the power of the Holy Spirit. So either you have a false humility in looking down at others and thinking, look at me because I keep the rules. But usually you know what it leads to because I've been there. Then it leads to defeat. Because pretty soon you don't keep the rules. You're so aware of your failures. 
And then the enemy does come along and say, you're a spiritual waste. You're no good. You know, you don't keep these days. You don't keep this rule. You don't keep this regulation. Now, we want to live to please the Lord, but we walk with him. It's by faith saying, Lord, guide me and direct me. Walking in a newness of life, and he will enable you to live for him more as you live in love and in just being sensitive to his leading and abiding in his word than if you just write down a bunch of rules and regulations, I'm going to keep this, and this is what's going to keep me righteous before God. It's not in what you do, it's what he did. Walk with him. Continue in faith. Live for him. Enjoy him. Walk in that newness of life. You are free to live for him. You're free from the power of the enemy and the power of sin in your life, abiding in Christ. We're so blessed, Christ in us, and we are complete in him. Amen? Amen. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for this word given to us. And, Lord, it's very important. Of course we have your word. Your word given to us so we know how to live. But, Lord, we need you working in us and through us to live a life that we can't do in the flesh. And, Lord, we don't want to have self-imposed things that, that we rely on, thinking that that's what's going to justify us. It is faith alone. And walking in that freedom that we have in Christ. Walking in the newness of life. Because I know there have been those who have told me this morning that they've put themselves under such regulations or people putting pressure on them to observe days or do certain things or whatever it might be. Lord, we, we do have convictions. But Lord, we can walk freely with you walking in the light walking Lord in a way that pleases you knowing that we're a child of God being forgiven that we can call out to you Abba Father and just continue to grow in that grace and that love and as we come to the communion table it just emphasizes what Jesus did for us and as we take the communion elements communion is for the believer his body broken, his blood shed for forgiveness of sin and this new covenant that we belong to. So I do want to pray for anyone here or anyone listening right now. That you're listening on live stream. Don't turn it off. Leave it on. That you haven't come to Christ for forgiveness and salvation and for reconciliation with the Father. He went to the cross he alone is your salvation. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And the invitation is for you to come, to repent. Quit going the direction you're going. Call out to Christ. Ask for forgiveness. Surrender your life to him. You can do that right now, right where you are. You can pray, Jesus, I come to you. And I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me. It is finished, paid in full. Heaven wiped out the handwriting requirements against me. 
And I believe you are alive. You rose again and that you are Lord. And I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for this new beginning and help me to walk in this newness of life, to walk in faith. Fill me with your spirit that I may know you all the days of my life in Jesus' name. And if you pray that prayer sincerely, the prayer team's going to come up. I want you to tell somebody, tell me at the door that you made that decision. But as we come to the communion table now, as we hold the elements and, and then we'll take of them together, but may we just remain in an attitude of worship and focus on you, Lord. The incredible provision for us as Jesus went to the cross. In Jesus' name.